Elections are top of mind right now, with a monumental U.S. presidential election just six weeks away. And a lot of people are worried about how they're going to vote in the middle of a pandemic and what it all means for the legitimacy of the outcome. But there are some people who are looking far beyond November 3rd at how we'll vote far into the future. Today, reporter Ben Wofford joins me to tell a story about two Texans who went head-to-head for years over the security of our voting machines and how their relationship ended up changing the future of election tech. Ben, thanks for joining me on Get Wired. Thanks for having me, Lauren. So, Ben, your story starts with an election clerk in Travis County, which is basically the city of Austin, Texas. It's nice to see you. Tell me about this clerk. So Dana de Beauvoir is a spunky, elegant woman born and raised in Texas. You mean you can hear an accent? (laughs) Utterly no nonsense and with a flair for turning any argument into a homespun Texas saying. She's been the clerk of Travis County since 1987 when she came in fresh out of grad school in public management And she took over an office that was terribly backlogged and badly mismanaged. And this was an office with tremendous power, not just in elections, but overseeing all the record keeping of the county, your marriage license, your death certificates. This being Texas, if you have steer that needs branding, (laughs) every aspect of public life in Texas almost entirely goes through the clerk's office. And on top of this mountain of responsibilities, they have to run the elections. November 1987 was my first election. It was a punch card election, a system that had already been in the county before I was elected. I was not impressed with what I saw. And so very soon after that very first election, I started working to get a better, a new voting system. But in the meantime, you know, we all did the best we could. The joke about elections is it's kind of like a a helicopter, 10,000 different parts looking for a place to crash. So then Bush v. Gore happens in 2000. So many things went wrong in that election, but one of them is that they used these paper ballots in Florida. To cast their vote, voters were supposed to punch all the way through the paper, but many of those ballots weren't punched all the way through. So Congress decides the solution is to move away from paper ballots and go digital with electronic voting machines. And Dana was on board. We could not continue with a county growing as fast as this one and still use the old-fashioned hand-scribbled paper. But it's not like the companies that were making these alternative machines were like IBM. You know, these were small market companies that really had no experience securing complex public systems. So Dana bought the best machines she could. They provided the right electronic support. You never, never had to worry about if you had the correct ballot for any voter who might walk in. So while Dana is buying these machines, along comes this guy named Dan Wallach. Here I am. Happy to help. And Dan is the opposite of Dana in almost every way. Dana, who is no nonsense in this kind of charming way, Dan is no nonsense in a kind of harsh in very serious way. Dan is a computer scientist at Rice University in Houston, and the 2000 debacle, it's a big wake-up call for him. He starts paying attention to election tech. 
And he starts to get really worried that Congress is allocating billions of dollars to this private market that doesn't take security protocols nearly as seriously as the computer science community does. And that's what lands him at a local hearing in 2001. And he walked in rather naive to politics and gave his testimony that these machines were vulnerable, that they were unsafe, that we had no visibility or transparency into the private industry that built them, no way to evaluate their security protocols. And to prove it, he pulls this rather colorful stunt. They had a demo machine set up on the counter. And while I was explaining the, the security issues with the machine, he gets up in the middle of his testimony and he walks across the auditorium. I opened the little side door where the memory card was and I pulled it out and I said, this is where the votes are recorded and there's absolutely nothing to stop me from putting this into my computer and overwriting it and changing it. And these things are simply not suitable for use in elections. So what Dan's saying is that the future of America just depends on the security of floppy disks. Like anyone can walk in there and pull out the floppy disk. And do a lot worse on it. In some cases, yeah, they could. And that's just one of the things that had Dan so freaked out. And of course, it had no impact. The county went ahead and bought them anyway. And he felt condescended to and ignored. You know, once a politician has made a decision to spend tens of millions of dollars, they're not going to allow facts to get in the way of their decision. And when you say, on technical reasons X, Y, and Z, you shouldn't buy this thing, they don't hear technical reasons, they hear political attacks. So Dan takes up this mantle and authors a number of papers through the mid-2000s that begin to document exactly what the vulnerabilities on these machines were. And so the first problem is that the code is proprietary and secret. So independent experts can't test it. And when they are able to test it, they find a raft of vulnerabilities that almost any hacker could exploit pathways into the code that could make these machines malfunction or break down, or even more creatively swap votes or change the tally of votes, and in theory, change who the winner is. So Dan and the computer scientists basically go full throttle, exposing these weaknesses. So does that approach actually work? Or was the reaction just, you know, those hackers are at it again? So they definitely got attention, but it wasn't necessarily the kind they wanted. A very natural response when you hear that the election can be hacked is to say, well, that's all just science fiction. And they had another even bigger problem. They had actually sounded the alarm so drastically with this no-holds-barred approach and this kind of devil-may-care attitude that they made enemies of the election clerks at a local level. You have a lot of voters' trust placed in you to make sure that the election is free and fair. And so by making a big stink about the problems in the electronic voting system, the clerks felt like the nerds were undermining trust in democracy. And so eventually Dan locks antlers with the most powerful clerk in the state of Texas, and that would be Dana DeBevoir. And Dana's just gotten these new machines. Dana problem solver that she is, feels trapped between the computer scientists and a private industry of a very small number of companies, which means there are very few machines to choose from, and they all suffer from these bad coding problems. Why are there so few options? What changed after Bush v. Gore was that Congress, by dumping billions of dollars into the system, ended up creating this massive gold rush. And a huge number of small new companies sprang up to build these machines. And they were often very new and very small. 
And what happened in this industry was what has happened actually in a lot of American life, which is the smaller companies got gobbled up by bigger and bigger companies. And what we've been left with are just now three companies who almost all but monopolize the market for election technology. Most counties are really poor, and they only buy machines every decade or so, and they'll have to buy them anyway, regardless of the quality. And so the companies have little incentive to build anything dramatically better. And so they've got the county clerks like Dana basically cornered. But Dana felt like the computer scientists didn't know that and were just around every corner waiting to hurl insults. What is it that you think we should be using? There was nothing available to purchase. They were only bashing the equipment and hurting voter confidence. And it got to be so frustrating. And we used to have a saying, it's an old Texas saying, any mule can tear down a barn. It was, you know, plain old ordinary rock throwing that if we uh, wanted to use an electronic uh, voting system, then we were automatically stupid and bad and incompetent. And Dana says at the front lines of all this aggression and rock throwing was Dan Wallach. He personally attacked me. Mm-hmm. Either either ignorant or, 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 or lying. It's one or the other. And this was a video that went out practically through the whole state. Wait, what is this video? So this was a citizens group staunchly opposed to electronic voting. And they had taped Dan for a kind of public service announcement. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else to it. So Dan and Dana become these sort of long-term professional adversaries. They're going head-to-head in the local newspaper. They're passive-aggressively inviting each other to speak on panels. The hot topic for them was that somehow these voting systems by themselves in a polling place were going to be hacked. And the word hacked, 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 just they just pounded on the Internet and pounded on voters about this idea that your voting system is going to get hacked. It's not my fault that these systems have significant security vulnerabilities. It's your responsibility as the election official in charge of these systems to do something about it. We went back and forth and back and forth. So this went on for years, and eventually Dana's voting machines start to age. We only have one chance uh, every 15 or 20 years to buy a new voting system, and our opportunity is coming up and we want to meet that window. Once you buy a system, there's no going back, there's no redo, it's too expensive. And as she looks for options to replace them, she realizes the computer scientists may have a point. And furthermore, she realizes the election administrators are actually losing this argument for the public's trust. So she makes a decision. And I finally just decided on my own, the only way to stop this negativity and lack of progress was to bring these computer scientists into the tent. LBJ always said, you want your enemies inside the tent pissing out, not outside the tent pissing in. So at this point, Dana has decided that it's better to have frenemies, right, rather than enemies. She says she wants the computer scientists inside the proverbial tent. So how does she actually bring them in? So every year, there's a preeminent security conference called USENICS. And in 2011, Dana travels to San Francisco to appear at this really high-level security conference and decides that she's going to give a speech. 
in front of a crowd of computer scientists, hacktivists, private sector security engineers who are active in this world of election security. I felt like if I failed, then there was no harm done because we were already in a world of hurt. For Dan, this was just another run-of-the-mill conference. This was in your typical windowless hotel ballroom. You, you know the kind where you know, there's a speaker up front with their slides and those hotel ballroom chairs and you're all kind of half awake. And he expected the same remarks from Dana as she always gave. But Dana had something totally different in mind. And for her, it was a little like going into the lion's den. Thank you, really, thank you for the opportunity. And she steps up and starts speaking, and she spends the first um, half of the speech calling out her audience of tech security experts. Demissions and other critics spent most of their time either attacking or defending electronic voting without any advice to those of us who are in the field about... Dana is really laying into them. Yeah, she tortures them. And then just as things couldn't get more uncomfortable in the room, she pivots and turns on her heels and says, so why did I come here today? And the second half of the speech is completely different. Through no fault of your own, you did not have the opportunity to sufficiently contribute your comments until far too late in the process after the certifications were completed and the systems were purchased and delivered. Way too late to really make a difference. For you, I imagined it felt like we would say in Texas, like hollering down a well. And it was at that point she revealed the reason that she had come to this security conference in San Francisco. It was to invite the top security engineers and computer scientists in the elections world to design a better voting machine. Why should I be spending my time working on a voting system in one little old bitty county way down south in the middle of Texas? Well, the answer I would give you is timing. We're going to see about a year from now a huge wave of all of our entities throughout the whole United States buying new voting systems with many of the problems that we had 10 years ago, which to me is kind of demoralizing. May I suggest to you that now is the time when you could put your mark on the future and you can use Travis County to make that mark. And, you know, I was like, my jaw was hanging. To have her come out and say, I'm not happy with what any company is willing to sell me and I need your help to, to do better, that was not a thing that we had ever heard before. She wanted a voting machine that would replace her current fleet, and she wanted to replace them with machines that would have the highest possible security conceivable, that they would have an auditable paper trail, something the security experts had been pushing for. And she said, The source code must be open. Dana begins this speech as an enemy, and she ends it by receiving you know, almost a standing ovation. So after Dana's speech, there's time for audience questions. It's my honor to take questions. And the first person to ask one is Dan Wallace. And Dan, are you my first? And his first reaction is actually skepticism. Um, he sort of dryly and pointedly says, I've been in Texas long enough to know that nobody listens to people who want to make change in elections. How are you going to pull this off? <laughs> 
Well, obviously, I've thought about that. And Dana's response is vulnerable, but also impassioned. And Dana says, it might not work, but I'll be damned if I'm not going to try. Then a couple weeks later, my phone rings. And I'm sitting in my office at Rice. I'm like, hello? Hey, this is Dana at Devoir. Can we talk? And, you know, she says, I want you to lead this effort. And my first reaction was, are you pulling my leg? He was stunned that I called him, and I was stunned that his reaction back was, oh, wow, we'd love to help. Can I bring some of my friends along? So Dan and Dana decide to start working together, and they're trying to do something that's never been done before with this level of security in a public-facing system at this scale. And they're doing it also under a ticking clock because Dana wants this to replace her fleet that's going to expire in in a few years. And if they can't get it done, then she's going to have to buy the same machines from the same private companies as before. So what do they do first? So Dan assembles a crew of some of the best cybersecurity and computer scientist experts in the elections field. It was... A dream team. So in 2012, these computer scientists convene in Austin with voting experts from a bunch of other fields. And the computer scientists are kind of humbled because they realize that building a voting machine designed for public use is actually a lot harder than they expected. As academics, it's not our job to build commercial products. And there's a world of difference between an academic prototype and a real production system. Good news was happening among the computer security people that they realized you can't think of elections in terms of just the black box. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there would be a lot of dimensions to consider here. You could work really hard to make sure the technology inside is secure. But at the end of the day, right, it's a product that people have to use, they have to touch, they have to interface with in like a pretty big way. Right. So you're building technology that has to be usable by literally everyone, the disabled, the able, the deaf, the blind, the tall, the short. You know, how many inches off the ground is your touchscreen? Right. I mean, that's a huge question that affects whether your technology is usable. But they figured it out and they ultimately designed a machine that's unlike any voting machine that had ever been put to paper. They decided to call the prototype Starvote and Starvote is an acronym that spells out their key values. It would be secure, transparent, auditable, and reliable. And when they say transparent, they mean transparent in a way that had never been done before. So people for the first time on this machine would be able to verify that their votes were counted. So it started with one of the computer scientists in the room, a Microsoft researcher named Josh Benelow. And Benelow has this idea to use this branch of mathematics called homomorphic cryptography. And what homomorphic encryption allows you to do is encrypt the ballot and still add up the votes even while the ballots themselves are still encrypted. And what this opens up is a kind of radical transparency that elections have never had before. So one of the things you can do with homomorphic encryption is to give voters a receipt in the polling place, and they can take that receipt home and find their encrypted ballot posted on an online bulletin board, and they could verify that their vote was counted without revealing who they voted for. And maybe most radically, the code for this protocol would be open source. 
And what that allows anyone to do is to verify that the person who claims to have won actually won the election. So where the private companies were keeping their code secret, open source is one of the core values of the computer scientists. They see open source as a way for the good guys to preemptively find weaknesses. And they designed Starvote to do this, the first machine to use this kind of homomorphic cryptographic protocol. And so this is kind of the open source community's dream. Right. Open source voting is basically saying we're going to democratize the technology on which our elections take place. And this was the most extreme utopian vision of that. So what happens next is they start looking for a way to build it. They've got this fantastic blueprint. What they wanted to do was invent a publicly owned machine that was open source that they could then basically give away. They wanted to create a revolution in which counties around the country could look at the blueprint for Starvote once it was constructed and build it in their garage. And to do that, you had to own the intellectual property. So Dana was adamant that Travis County should own the intellectual property of Starvote. And they had to find someone to finance the project who would be open to that. But almost immediately, they run into this brick wall, which is a complete lack of interest in actually being able to finance the building of the machine. They tried nonprofits. They tried big foundations. They tried their local congressmen to see if the federal government might chip in to fund it. They couldn't find anyone interested in actually building this machine. And the reasons were basically twofold. One, there wasn't enough money, either in academia or in foundations or in state governments. And two, none of those entities really understood what homomorphic cryptography was or really felt much urgency around the issue in general. So public funding was out, and reluctantly, they decided to try the private sector, who had made this problem of under-engineered voting technology in the first place. But the voting tech companies didn't have any real interest in building StarVote, and the reason seemed pretty clear. They wouldn't make very much money off of it. We were up against their need for profit. She's running out of time and realizing that no one in the public sector could help build them, and no one in the private sector would help build them. It was a difficult time in that about 20 months. I lost my mother. She died. I lost my husband. I was running out of time. And at that point, it's like, I, I know I have fought this fight for a long time, but I need to give this up so that we can move forward with at least buying a voting system that has as much security as we can get out of the marketplace and a paper trail. So I pivoted from, you know, all heart, mind and soul put into Starvote as the answer for the future. It was such a sad moment, such heartbreak in my life. Man, so Dana's lost the people closest to her. And at the same time, she's basically realizing that they can't build Starvote by the time that she needs to replace her machines. Right. So Dana has to give it up, but she's come to see as her life's work and ends up going into negotiations with one of the big vendors to buy one of their voting machines off the shelf. But what's happening in exactly this time is the seed of an event that's going to turn the fortunes around of this idea. And that is the debacle of the 2016 election. As Americans and public officials woke up to the extent of the meddling that the FBI, the DHS, the Senate Intelligence Committee have now all demonstrated took place in the 2016 election at the hands of Russian-backed hacking organizations, 
the tide and the mood shifted dramatically, both in the public with election clerks, but also in the private sector, about how much more seriously everyone needed to take this threat that had once been perceived as kind of science fiction. So the targets of this vast hacking operation were mostly state and county voter registration systems, not the voting machines themselves. But what it showed was all of the interest and possibility for tech disruptions to U.S. elections. And so after shopping this secure voting design around for years and basically being ahead of their time and no one being interested, in a way, Dan and Dana and their whole crew are vindicated. What is the name for the emotion where you feel some kind of pleasure at the fact that you found out how bad something is, that emotion comes in waves. So if there is a silver lining to what happened in 2016, it seems as though it's that they finally started to get attention from the private sector around these ideas for these new voting machines. Right. So right after 2016, Microsoft decides to launch this major initiative to help U.S. election security. And Benelo, who's the programmer on Dan and Dana's team, still works at Microsoft. So he tells them about StarVote. And they decide to create not a whole new machine, but a software development kit, a sort of motorcycle sidecar that can fit on existing voting machine technology to incorporate a lot of the key elements of StarVote. And so Microsoft is developing this for free. They're calling it Election Guard. Uh, I like StarVote better. Right, right. Yeah, like StarVote sounds cool. It sounds like something that hackers would put together. And then Election Guard sounds like deodorant that you wear to the polls or something. Right, right. StarVote sounds like the way Luke Skywalker would vote in the Galactic Senate. So Microsoft isn't building StarVote. StarVote died a noble death. But StarVote's core ideas do live on in Election Guard. It's encrypting the vote, it's giving voters a receipt, and it's allowing independent analysts to verify the results. And they're also making Election Guard open source. And that's key because the hope is that new companies or even nonprofits one day could use the free software to build a new generation of voting machines. So the technology that Dan and Dana and their team developed could very well fundamentally change the way we vote. So when will we actually be voting with this election guard technology? The earliest time frame for a prototype is 2021. And if we're lucky, we'll start to see them used in elections in 2022. But really the bigger goal here for Dan is not just about fixing the voting machines themselves. Election technologies are one piece, but so is gerrymandering. So is fake news. When I have my head down writing unit tests for my cryptographic code, I'm not necessarily thinking about this high level, distant prize that I'm aiming for, but I'm trying to do my part to advance us towards this broader goal. It sounds like he's working on these really high tech solutions, right? He's talking about working on his cryptographic code for fixing voting. But at the same time, in our current state, I mean, we're still talking about voting by mail and there's still very real issues around voter suppression. Um, So it seems like there are these parallel tracks happening, like a high tech solution. But we also need to solve some of our pretty big social problems. Right. And in the middle of a pandemic, no less. And so Dana has gone from reinventing voting tech to now scrambling to find solutions to a very real 
but super low-tech problem, which is snail mail. Many of us believe that all the states should have gone to by mail voting. But the leadership in Texas does not hold that same opinion at all. They were against expanding vote by mail. When we found out about the sabotage of the post office, what we did was we said, all right, well, I'm going to go with a little known, little used law in Texas that allowed the county clerk's business office, not the elections office, but the business office to accept hand delivered by mail ballots, you know, already voted, sealed, and they can show up at the county clerk's office and directly put it into a ballot box. We figured out that and figured out that we needed to have drive through lanes. Learning computing security was one new territory, but now learning about epidemiology and public health. So I guess Dina is becoming an amateur epidemiologist like the rest of us these days. But if there's anyone who can tackle it, I think it's probably her. All right. Wish us luck with the November 3rd election (laughs) and early voting. Good luck, Dina. And Ben, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining me on Get Wired. Thanks so much for having me. I should also note that Ben's story is part of a collection of stories we're running in the October issue of Wired, and it's all about the upcoming election. That hits newsstands tomorrow, September 15th, and we'll be publishing online version of those stories that day as well. That's it for this episode of Get Wired. Get Wired is hosted by me, Lauren Good. You can follow me on Twitter, at Lauren Good. This episode was reported by Ben Wofford. You can find Ben on Twitter at Ben Wofford DC. Thanks to Travis County Clerk Dana Debouvoir for coming on the show, as well as Rice University Professor Dan Wallach. This episode was produced by Anna Stitt, with additional production help from Mickey Capper and Alex Jerome. Mixing and scoring was done by Hannes Brown, and our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Nina Gensler Debs and Sarah Fallon edited this episode. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Scott Rosenfield is Wired's site director, and our editor-in-chief is Nick Thompson. And of course, we want to thank you, our listeners, for subscribing to the Get Wired podcast. We really pay attention to your feedback and reviews, so please tell us what you like about the show and what you want to hear more of. You can do that on apps like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can also find more information directly on our website at wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash get wired. Thanks again for listening and we'll be back next week.